Basic Bitches Movie Club, where we talk to music people about movies about music people. I'm Naomi, I use she, her pronouns. I'm Crystal, I also use she, her pronouns, and we are Basic Bitches. Today we're talking with Problem Patterns from Belfast, Northern Ireland, about 1999's But I'm a Cheerleader, starring Natasha Leone as Megan, a high school cheerleader whose friends and family send her to a gay conversion camp where the suspiciously camp staff inadvertently help her embrace her queer identity, experience her first gay bar, and fall in love with the quintessential 90s lesbian, Clea Duval. Problem Patterns, introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Beth uh, from Problem Patterns, and I use she, her pronouns. I'm Beverly, she, her as well. I'm Alana, she, her. Awesome. So... But I'm a cheerleader. So I, I'm i interested to know how you found your way to this movie because I actually didn't know this movie existed until I moved to America. <laughs> I don't know how it passed me by in England. So how did you how did you find this? I, uh, I actually remember seeing the trailer for this film on like, I can't remember what movie it would have been, uh, but probably some VHS somewhere. Um, and I remember there was a lot of hype around it based off of the fact that it was RuPaul's first role out of drag. And I was um, obsessed with Natasha Leone at the time for reasons I didn't you know, quite understand, but I had a lot of rewatches <laughs> of Slums of Beverly Hills, which was definitely too old for, you know, I think I would have been like 12 or 13 at the time. Watched that plenty of times. And then yeah, immediately, as soon as this was out on VHS, uh, rented it and was obsessed ever since. I think I was about 16 and I was a big like Tumblr like in the closet like scrolling through gift sets of lesbian movies um, and <laughs> I think I came across it because I um, Orange is the New Black hadn't started yet but there was a lot of hype about Natasha Lyonne um, and I just thought it, it looked very interesting. <laughs> to 16 year old me it was like exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I had a bit of a, a, a sexuality crisis quite late in life um, and it was a few years ago and I went over to my mate's house and I was just like what's going on with my feelings towards women <laughs> uh, we chatted for a while but then eventually she just put but I'm a cheerleader on and you know it just it's fails <laughs> <laughs> and then you process things along with Megan yeah, I don't know if you know the uh, comedian Fortune Feimster, but she has this incredible yeah. bit in her special about this realizing she's gay watching a Lifetime movie, which, <laughs> you know, you can't choose how it comes to you sometimes. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, Kira, actually, our bandmate who couldn't make it to recording, uh, she actually said the one thing that she wanted to say was that she bought the DVD for 99 pence as a teenager and it made her realize that she was a pansexual. Uh, she still fancies Graham and would wash her hair for her. <laughs> Very specific. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she does spend a lot. I don't know if it's Jill. She does look mm. like she needs She's someone great to wash her hair for her. Yeah. Um, I actually wanted to look up when, so this was 1999, when The Faculty came out. Oh, yeah. 
because it's, she's basically playing the same character yeah but in the faculty it's like oh you all just thought she was gay because you didn't ask her she's actually just mad and now she's gonna date elijah wood at the end <laughs> <Very disappointing>. <laughs> <laughs> she kind of played the same character in buffy as well she oh did, yeah but she yeah. went invisible in that one she did famously she just went invisible (laughs) (laughs) oh we should do we could do a whole podcast just about the 90s career of Clea Duval I think yeah there's a lot of rich material to draw from there (laughs) for sure let's do it (laughs) yeah yeah I mean I think I also um I mean I I really like this movie um I think I also found it relatively late um, but I do remember, I remember the visuals of it, um, when it was first out in the world, like, I remember seeing the poster, and, like, I think I saw some previews, but I didn't really have that much of an understanding of what it was about, but the, the, like, color coding of everything, and the, like, really bright, campy, um, like, kind of plastic Barbie doll house facade of everything, like, I found really interesting as I was working my way out of that, like, is this fantasy? Is this reality? And, um, you know, uh, that I think still sticks with me um, with this movie as well. Now that I have like a much deeper understanding of it, um, I always found the visuals really interesting and really like funny and thoughtful and pretty on point. But one of the things we noticed when we were kind of researching this movie too, was that one of the criticisms of the film is that it's like, it's too obvious. Like all the the plots too heavy handed. And it's like, that that criticism seems to me um, to be directly coming from a white man. <laughs> like a straight dude totally saw this yep. and was like, so obvious. <laughs> it's like, that's cause it's not for you, man. Exactly. <laughs> it's not for me, so I didn't like it. Yeah, so yeah, it's so obvious, but I still cried during that graduation scene, even like when I rewatched it yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we mentioned to um, the band Bangs that did a previous episode that we were watching this, and um, and Erica said to her bandmate, Jess, have you seen that? And she was like, Of course, I have. How we don't have that many movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We were like, how many times can we watch Carol? You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually weirdly writing something at the minute for like a something that I'm not sure if I can talk about. Um, about kind of lesbian identity in films and TV and how like the kind of bury your gaze trope and if they're not dead, they're miserable. And I think this movie mm-hmm. is kind of one of the exceptions. It's like a campy, cheerful, like, yes, there's drama, but there's a happy ending for a lesbian, which is... They a rarity. Yeah, they're both alive. Yeah, Nobody right. gets cheated on. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's there's a real sweetness to this movie, which I think is what makes it so um, heartwarming and like emotional. Those are the scenes that I responded to. Just like the real th- that that sweetness. It's really like heartfelt and really heartwarming in a way that to anybody else probably feels so obvious. It's so <laughs> over the top, you know. But it's like. It's really rare, I think, to see that perspective. I think there's something really powerful as well in uh, Natasha Leone's journey, because, like, you know, representation matters. And to have somebody who, to, you know, 
the untrained eye is a regular cishet person suddenly realize that they have these feelings but still you know she's a cheerleader <laughs> she's wearing a very pretty dress when she turns up she's got long hair there's no makeup on her face the other girls that she meets at the camp are very stereotypical in their presentation and there's kind of something really powerful about the fact that she isn't but she still is a lesbian <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and that she doesn't really have to compromise herself by the end of the movie. Like, she's able to, like, come to terms with who she is and, like, then still be a cheerleader and, like, express herself. Um, you know, she didn't, she didn't have to give all of that up, you know, and that is definitely a powerful message, too. Like, she could stay true to her own principles and who she was and what she believed in, but, like, also be gay. Yeah, absolutely yeah which doesn't seem like it's a radical concept but it kind of is there's no like lesbian makeover she goes under <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think in a lesser film there would be i mean i also uh, sort of understood my sexuality much later and i've said that like as a kid i think a big part of that was just not seeing anybody that looked or felt like me in media um you know maybe if i had found this younger Maybe I still wasn't out the first time I saw it but <laughs> yeah I mean I saw it when it came out and uh took me like two more decades <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I think like when especially in the 90s when queer characters did appear and they weren't out there was always this narrative of like they they look super queer they just haven't worked it out you know what I mean? There was no, never any subtlety about the looks. This is a little different. I mean, still everyone except her apparently knows she's gay, which is still a little <laughs> bit harsh. Because she's tofu. Yeah, right, she, that's, yeah, that's it. She's yeah. vegetarian. <laughs> mm -hmm. Fully related to the scene where she's kissing that boy and she's just not into it at all. That was like my first 17 years of life. <laughs> I really appreciated like the innocence with which she has the like yeah. swimsuit photo of the girl inside her locker <laughs> just like looking at it well like I used to get <laughs> I used to get my mom to buy the Doctor Who Adventures magazine when I was younger because I fancied Billy Piper and I didn't understand mm. but I just wanted those posters so I also relate to that <laughs> scene too <laughs> I mean, you, you're unfortunately a little bit young to have appreciated the ultimate queer-coded Doctor Who sidekick, Ace, from uh, the 80s. Anyone else? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> she was borderline Sporty Spice in her sort of presentation, but Big Doc Martens on a bomber jacket uh, was the vibe. Um, I remember yeah. that. She certainly never fell in love with Doctor Who. <laughs> Doctor Who was not age appropriate at that time either. Um, sorry, Doctor Who tangent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, giant um, Doc Martens and a uh, huge coat is almost as obvious as a Mel Melissa Etheridge poster in your bedroom, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. the, those are the giveaways. Yeah, it's Melissa Etheridge or Tegan and Sarah. That's the two. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The Indigo Girls. You know, it's another. <laughs> but I mean, maybe this is a good tangent for us to uh, a good segue to talk about the music in the film, oh, yes. um, which, you know, is was actually really fun for us to research like some of the music in the film, because I think a it's really, really well placed. It really like 
really amps up the, the like sweetness of the movie and the emotion of the movie. But a lot of the bands were like really tiny indie bands from wherever. And uh, yeah, so tell us a little bit more about that, about the music and how it relates to you all. Uh, this movie basically led me to discovering what like twee music was, uh, you know, bands like Go Sailor and Dressy Bessie. Um, and I feel like this is one of those films where the music is so integral like they're really like carefully picked and like you know I'm not a movie snob or anything but I feel like kind of more modern films they kind of throw in the songs in post-production or something kind of whatever is you know uh it fits the BPM and it's like popular um but this is really one of those films where each song just fits the scene so well like I couldn't imagine you know that kiss scene without dressy Bessie if you should try to kiss her mm-hmm. like that's such like like that song, especially, I think that was like one of the songs that we all bonded over um, <laughs> that, you know, it's just like the cutest song in the world. Um, but yeah, the soundtrack is just like, it, it is just so important to me as a whole. Um, it got me into Go Sailor, like I said, and I was actually like lucky enough to see Go Sailor almost 10 years ago now. And they played a few songs and like, as much as I was there to see the band, it was also hearing these songs from this film live. And it was just such a like, lovely moment hearing like Ray of Sunshine and Together Forever in Love. And um, afterwards I got to meet Rose Melberg and like just talk to her about this film. And it was just like one of those like full circle lovely moments for me. Um, wow. Yeah, it was great. I think we were a bit like, like query and whether this movie was appropriate for the podcast because it's like the the ones that we'd heard before had been like like freaky friday or whatever and we're like fully focused on the songs where i feel like this one's a bit more subtle um Mm. but i do think that the music is equally as important to this film as say jamie lee curtis doing the guitar solo in freaky friday um (laughs) and like it has like some really like early rupaul like whenever rupaul was like proper like supermodel of the world pop star um rather than just churning any old crap out now (laughs) um but like that scene with party train where the the guy the son's like dancing as he's like cleaning up the garden like that is just hilarious but it's still really subtle it's like so clever um and I think they like use the music so like in a really smart way in this film um, to like really add to the scenes rather than as Alana said just firing anything in that was like popular at the time. I think as well like um, getting into such a specific genre like twee music it's actually really women and queer heavy like there's definitely a direct line between this film and like the lineup at a festival like Indie Tracks like I feel like a lot of bands that I listen to now were directly influenced by this movie and its soundtrack. Um, like I can think of just off the top of my head, like a band like Spook School or something. Uh, like there's just, there's just this um, perfect pairing of that kind of music with this film and with that feeling. Like they all, there's so many bands now that are clearly inspired by acts like Go Sailor or Dressy Bessie that feel like they would fit perfectly on the soundtrack for this film as well. Like it all, you know, comes around. Um, there was April March's cover of Laissez Tomber Le Feel, her Chick Habit cover is on this. And 
I just, I associate it way more th- with this film than I think, was it like Tarantino used it on something? And I think a lot of people, yeah, yeah, yeah a lot of people say it's, you know, what I was in Death Proof, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's oh. it, yeah. No, I always think of this film when I hear it. Like, I love April March. She's such a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's something really interesting in the way that, like, uh, I mean, the thing with tween music, I, I feel is like it's, um, it's like this really specific way of being very, very, very um, emotionally vulnerable. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and pairing it with like the visuals of this film or specifically it's the visuals of, um, I forget the woman's name, the woman who owns the camp because she's invented this world. Yes. She's mm-hmm. put, she, and invented is the right word because nothing is, you know, the, it's a visual manifestation of the fact that nothing is true about this camp. She has not cured her son, let alone anyone else. But, you know, she's putting plastic plants in the front yard and they were wearing clothes that are sort of made of plastic. And like the fake daisies on the wall in the bathroom is made <laughs> oh, of really detail. Yeah. <laughs> but they're surrounded by this like hyper colored, very fake world and they're being compelled to voice emotions that are not their own but the soundtrack it's like the it's like the the visuals are that experience but the soundtrack is like somehow their internal monologue if that makes sense even the even the like segue music it's all like I thought like (laughs) express the colors perfectly (laughs) like it's all so cheery and just makes you feel good and while also knowing that it's all a sham (laughs) (laughs) yeah and I like that even in 1999 RuPaul was the like fearsome marketing genius that he's always been and got his own song on the soundtrack (laughs) absolutely (laughs) but this was like a really interesting role for RuPaul and I'm I hesitate to say, but potentially RuPaul's most convincing acting moment absolutely (laughs) I'm still we're still all obsessed with the uh, straight is great t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Amazing. And that scene where he's like lying under the car. Charged yeah. with the homoeroticism. Yeah, I mean, I 100% bought him in this role from the moment he arrives. Yep. And is giving like the absolute, the like, hey, okay, well, we feel like, you know, <laughs> we're going to get you to this camera. We're going to sort you out. It's all good. And um. Yeah, compared to like, I don't know if you saw AJ and the Queen. Oh yeah. Yeah, that was a struggle. It's almost refreshing to go back and watch like that younger RuPaul when he still seemed to care. (laughs) It's such a, it's such a, you know, I mean, I'm not gonna fault his hard work and, you know, he's built the empire and is, you know, at the very top of his game now, but it just seems like a completely different person. And I just, uh, to see him in this kind of, role and without all the makeup and you know playing this kind of a thing and seem to be having so much fun with it it's just like that's the RuPaul that we all fell in love with mm-hmm. and party train is a yeah. bop yeah yeah <laughs> it is we had all planned pre-lockdown to do an event based around this film and we were going to basically have us and a few other musicians in Belfast covering all the songs and our Akira was going to do a version of uh, Party Train. 
So <laughs> if that ever happens. Yeah, you please live stream that. <laughs> yeah, let us know. <laughs> um, talking of notable faces in this film, I only made two notes watching this movie. The first one was Melissa Etheridge's gay iconography. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the, the only other note I wrote down was Rufio. Rufio, Rufio! yes. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. No. Uh, when oh yeah. I, I rewatched it. I that was the first thing that like popped into mind too. Like I was expecting all the other ones, like RuPaul and stuff, and then I was I did not remember Rufio being in it. <laughs> so that was exciting. Another gay sort icon? Of- I was going to say another low-key gay icon. (laughs) I don't think there's any, any, um, I mean, I haven't watched Hope for 1,000 years, but we had it on video and we watched it a lot when I was a kid. I don't think there's any overt queer coding of Rufio. (laughs) He's quite flamboyant though, isn't he? The half shirt and the hair cut. Did he have like the red highlights? Mm -hmm. Was that it? Red highlights. And the feathers and shit. Absolutely. Yeah, he's wearing like a, a half mesh shirt so you can see his abs. Oh, yeah. He's saying it while not saying it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, delighted to see to see Rufio in this. Um, oh, he was good. Who else was... Oh, the... Um, the I guess she's Australian. The, the goody two-shoes. Two and a half man? No, I was gonna say she actually. I haven't seen three and a half men. She turned up in um, Mrs. America, the uh, Kate Blanchett. Oh right, yeah, yeah, that was her, wasn't it? She <laughs> was like, she's playing like an extremely right wing, like trying to mobilize America against everybody, but particularly <laughs> feminists. Oh, nice. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, she's Charlie Sheen's crazy next door neighbor in Two and a Half Men. Oh. oh. Hmm. She's also in Parks of Being a Wallflower. Oh, right. So she had she had a flourishing career after this film. Yeah, I mean, a few people, yeah. a few people did. So, yeah, so Natasha Lyonne had been, like, in things as a kid. Was this the first thing where she was, like, approaching adulthood? Maybe. I, I think when it did was she do this, American Pie? It was 99 that was, as that well. That was, like, after, yeah. Right. Mm. But she, she had done Slums of Beverly Hills the year before, I think. Right. And that one was definitely like, like I said, I definitely shouldn't have been watching it so many times as a doctor. <laughs> but I did that's for whatever reason. The, that's me with that music video for all the things she said. <laughs> <laughs> On repeat. <laughs> Again, there aren't that many things for us. Exactly. <laughs> we have to continue what we can. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, she was, she was great and her like, yeah, watching her progression and like her thought process and all of this dawn on her and like when we were watching it the other night when she's you know trying to get through step one of admitting (laughs) that she is a homosexual like seeing that dawn on her and then her just being like oh my god oh no yeah, they just spit, like, didn't she? <laughs> yeah, the spit. Really, really committed to yeah. that moment. <laughs> but like you you can feel it. Like there's a real weight to that, you know? Like we've all kind of had those moments in our own ways, but like to kind of see it, there was it was a lot more emotional than I remembered it being. Like just just her sitting in the room by herself after everyone's like, okay, good job, bye. <laughs> 
And then they take oh, it yeah. on the big board. Yep. Right. Check. Check. Good job. Yep, okay. <laughs> I'm going to continue drooling by myself in the other room. <laughs> oh, yeah. She kind of has that moment when they're all kind of trying to convince her. And she's like, doesn't everybody think of those things? Mm-hmm. That like, was oh. fully me, though. Like, yeah. that was fully me. <laughs> It's so relatable that this film is like such a good depiction of that type of like, because I mean, I realized when I was 16, I didn't tell anyone until I was 22. Um, and I feel like this movie is like, you don't see these kids. Like I didn't see myself on in a movie whenever I was growing up. And I think it's so important. Mm-hmm. And I think there is like, I think whenever I talk about this movie, it's like, oh, it's a great film. It's really funny. It's dead camp. But there is like a real emotional element to it as well. And every time I rewatch it, mm-hmm. I kind of forget that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like how Bev-, Bev was saying at the end with the whole like graduation scene. And it really mm-hmm. does still hit you after all this time. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying so hard to be strong. <laughs> like, I can't but cry. even like, I, like, I don't know like how aware you guys are but even like in 2021 in Northern Ireland like we're having votes on conversion therapy here so it's mm-hmm. still like pretty relevant and not to get real serious and stuff but I mean I think it, it this movie like makes it a joke kind of but then still kind of underlines how serious an issue conversion therapy is mm-hmm. um and it's not something that's like real distant and happening like thousands of miles away it's literally happening in our in our country right now which is pretty fucked up like yeah Yeah, no absolutely there's like and and that's kind of the the like a hidden power of this movie right is that it's like it's it's still really relevant and the feelings are really real um that come across here and I mean it was so the movie was based on an article that the, the director had read about conversion therapy and then some, it, on the Wikipedia page, it's a little vague of like some experiences that she had with conversion therapy. Well, but. I think what it was, was that her mom worked in um, rehab centers. So she right. had like experience of the sort of group therapy side of thing. And also the director and writer was a queer woman. I think <laughs> right. That's pretty obvious. I mean, that's, that's bravo for that. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think, I think this was around the time when there was starting to be more press about the fact that these conversion camps even existed. I mean, mm-hmm. we looked it up. There's um, there's a, well, he's he's no longer with us, but there is a film reviewer called Roger Ebert over here who's like, he's sort of the uh, Barry Norman <laughs> of of America, just an older gentleman whose entire career was reviewing films. And he's pretty good about um, uh, about trying to see context that isn't necessarily his to these kind of films because we saw a New York Times review of this movie, which was the one that Crystal was referencing earlier. That was just like, I don't get, I don't get it. It's too obvious. Whatever. And Roger Ebert's report was basically like, um, you know, it's recently been brought to my attention that these camps really exist. And then sort of like gives a much more nuanced review of the film with that information. <clears throat> so I think that that, because I sort of remember there being 
I don't. My brain wants to say Ricky Lake, but that doesn't make any sense. But there being like American TV shows that would talk about it, um, I just think Ricky Lake because that's all I was watching at the time. <laughs> it definitely started in the '90s to be people were trying to bring it into focus a little bit more. Yeah. But this film struggled to get um, a certificate that would have allowed more people to see it. They were trying to give it an NC-17, which is like an 18. Because it's women? Um, but Because it's gay. Because yeah. there yeah. was like, because there was same-sex kissing. There's nothing more than kissing. Yeah, no, there's nothing. Yeah, that's... Well, I guess I like mean, it's not the appropriate by the makeout scene. You see the odd hand rolling up a leg or whatever. Yeah, but it's no more than what you see in like Notting Hill or something, and that's a twelve. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know what it went out with in the end, but there was a lot of like going back and forth to the certification board and like having to cut a few seconds here and there out of it because they it just released like a, a director's cut this year. Which I haven't yeah. actually watched yet. I haven't seen, so I don't know how different it is from the original cut. I'm not Maybe sure. that's the NC seventeen cut. Yeah. That's probably it. <laughs> probably it's just all a... boobs. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's got their boobs out for the whole film. Even Lucille has his boobs out. Yeah. There's <laughs> not a shirt to be found. Mm-mm. But I think like the conversion therapy element in the movie is obviously like the main focus, but it's not like gratuitous or upsetting or anything like how Ryan Murphy potentially depicts conversion therapy in American Horror Story which I know is a horror show but that man seems to like love torturing lesbians in all of his yeah. shows <laughs> he does. <laughs> um yeah Ratchet yep yeah or he just secretly hates Sarah Paulson is the only <laughs> yes. other yeah. explanation he's got beef with Sarah Paulson that's it <laughs> He's just trying to create as many of those like cries and lesbian gifts as possible. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's where the real money is. But you're right, it makes it makes conversion therapy ridiculous. That's kind of yeah. how it takes like the power out of it. Yeah. Exactly. It because it is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But the the emotion attached to it is real. You know, like the scene where um her uh Natasha Leone's like the people who play her parents come in and they're trying to like get her to confess that her she went to the gay bar and they're like well you yeah you know if you went that you can't come home like we don't want anything to do with you if you went to a gay bar and she's like again brilliantly played by Natasha Leone like you could see it hit her like wow my parents really want nothing to do with me if if I'm who I am like if I say that I did this thing because I am this like it's it you can see it it really flips that like her parents are being absolutely unreasonable this is a terrible thing to say to your child what why why are we doing this you know and it's even the same the scene where they're like in the like circle therapy with Graham's parents Mm -hmm. and her dad like starts saying all the slurs and stuff yeah that bit's really upsetting as well yeah, I mean it, it, but it handles the it the way the movie kind of handle those handles those moments feels pretty balanced with the ridiculousness of the the therapy because they're like, okay, tell us what your root is. No, that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not it. That doesn't make sense. And then like 
Natasha Leone says something that is kind of insightful and the the director is like oh that's absolutely what it is and she's like no no I don't think it's there's so much like push and pull and like forcing of narratives onto other people with which is um you know it's interesting and it's just I think the way the movie operates is really clever in that sense and I think in anybody else's hands maybe somebody that didn't actually um, have the same kind of insight would have been either way too ridiculous or way too harsh you know yeah I think even like the handling of like the gender roles in it like the girls are taught Mm -hmm. to change like baby doll diapers and the guys are taught to change like fix cars and they're all in like over the top pink and blue coated outfits like Mm -hmm. even that like it is ridiculous but it's also like a really clever commentary oh yeah I had never realized until I went back to watch it after a few years that like I remember the pink and blue very vividly uh but I never realized that everyone outside the camp like her parents are all wearing different shades of brown yeah Yeah. just a brown everybody's neutral yeah (laughs) I thought that was so funny yeah, when she's walking down the, the high school corridor and every other teenager is just wearing brown. <laughs> and then all the hidden phallics. I know in Larry and Lloyd's house. All the phallic stuff that's hidden in What? It. Oh, yeah. Phalluses <laughs> everywhere. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> right, Bev, what were you going to say? I just talked to me. Oh, I was saying about Larry and Lloyd's house mm. being draped in rainbow. That's like everybody's house whenever nice. they first come out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Rufio appears in full rainbow. Uh, <laughs> I want to say it's pajamas, but he may be going yes. outside in them. Oh my God. <laughs> like a prison yeah. jumpsuit, but rainbow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and even having those two characters, the like the XX gays, um, you know, to like introduce a counterpoint, um, you know, they're, they're like certainly much more open and accepting obviously but like there is a level of ridiculousness to them as well yeah because their whole like like, identity is like gay 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 yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah but I mean it's it's important to have a counterbalance too but like through all of this it's just like this is what you have to navigate really like the either it's like one side or the other. You have to be totally not or a hundred percent in, and there's like no in between. I think the, you know, what we discover at the end of the movie, like we're kind of saying, is that there is you you're willing to kind of encompass multitudes. You know, like you can still stay true to some things and and go in other directions. It's like the movie presents those sides, I think, in a really smart way, and like lets us follow Megan as she figures out what it is that she actually wants um which is what makes that last scene so powerful right she's like oh she figured it out (laughs) um like graham's parents are like if you're gay you don't get to college you don't get to go to college we're not paying for it and like one of the first things that larry the xx gay says to megan is let's start looking at schools Mm -hmm. like that kind of duology is a it's pretty cute that is adorable one thing I think the movie does well is angst. I live <laughs> for the angst. Um, like that scene in the club whenever they're dancing with two different people, but they're looking at each other. Mm-hmm. Love that. That's like my life force, that type of stuff. <laughs> and it's, I like that it's, it's Julie Delpy of all people. Oh my gosh, yes. 
She's just hanging out, waiting to sexy dance with whatever lesbian <laughs> catches her eye at any given night. She's still there when they go back. Yep. She's just waiting. She's credited as like lipstick lesbian or something. Nice. Doesn't... Yeah. Nice. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, I'm surprised. Like, it was only ever going to be her or like Judy Greer or something. Like, mm-hmm. I just feel Judy Greer would play a good lipstick lesbian. Yeah, I feel like she would be the only other person to go into that exact, exact role. This felt like a really good representation of a small town gay bar as well. Yes. (laughs) So few people hanging out from start. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it just kind of looks like the like it looks like someone's garage or something or like the back of a gas station. Yeah. And just and like a if weird you walk out the door, if you walk out the door, it's just the rubbish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just making me think of like another 90s film that just came to mind that has a lesbian bar scene in it is uh, First Wives Club. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Which is like the complete, I mean, I know they're supposed to be in Manhattan, but this is the complete other side of this. Like <laughs> it's packed and there's like booming music and like everyone's very very butch <laughs> this this was like this was like a nice it definitely felt more real to me but then i don't know what manhattan lesbian bars were like in the mid-90s Maybe <laughs> it, <that> wasn't. <laughs> oh yeah this definitely felt like you said like small town uh gay bar where you like there's the chance that you might see an old english teacher or something and have to pretend not to have seen them <laughs> But you definitely wouldn't run into any bachelorette parties. Yeah, exactly. no. yeah. everyone was there to hook up. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the being of a gay club nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that I was thinking about um, since it was, you know, released, re-released on Director's Cut last year was that we have still not actually had this soundtrack officially out. It never came right, out on CD. Right. And I'm just like, you know, in the very small chance that Jamie Babbitt or some producer might hear this um (laughs) I am pleading you already have the aesthetic there make it a vinyl that's half blue half pink you know it's right there it's right there yeah they never even put it on crying out it's crying out for a record store day oh my gosh yes 100% like (laughs) the fact like we all as a band bonded over the soundtrack I know so many people who love this film so much as a whole but also because of the soundtrack and it's like you know become this huge cult thing over the years and the fact that it never even got a cd like what's that like half the songs aren't even on spotify yeah exactly yeah. like it's impossible to even make like you know the fan spotify playlist uh and I just again you know I can already picture the vinyl just get it out there <laughs> yeah that's a great idea think we're onto something here all right one of us has got to make it happen i'm gonna yeah. start maybe we can get beth to tweet she's very good at uh people i'm good at her. i'm good at tweeting stuff into existence <laughs> yeah i mean if they need anyone to executively produce it as well we've got quite a team here oh exactly yeah. i will gladly pitch in 20 quid or whatever <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, thank you all for bringing this movie uh, into our podcast. We are psyched to talk about it and to talk about the music. Um, 
uh, how can people find out about you and your music? What's coming up for you all? Um, let, let the people know. We are currently in the process of writing our first album. Um, we have EPs and singles, well, an EP and singles on Spotify um, and Bandcamp, which people can check out, but we're hopefully going to have an album out within the next year, maybe. Is that optimistic? Awesome. <laughs> I, you know, we, we got our first EP out very quickly. I think the album will probably fall out of us very quickly as well. <laughs> That's kind of how we do things. But yeah, we're like on our, all our socials are prop patterns because problem patterns was taken. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> when you when you search the hashtag problem patterns, sometimes it comes up with like um outfits from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm, I'm, into that, I'm into that. I'm into that. I thought you I'm were gonna that, say yeah. like maths or something, but that's like a whole <laughs> other yeah. Oh, it's very fashion. Okay. <laughs> I like that. All right. Hot tip. <laughs> <laughs> If anybody's looking for like Tara and Willow's best outfits, just search the hashtag problem pattern. It'll all be posts that Beth made herself. Yeah, it's just me. <laughs> it's my Tillow fan blog from my olden days on Tumblr. <laughs> <laughs> all right, y'all. This has been super fun. Thank you so much for having uh, us. Yeah, thanks so much for having us on. Yeah, I'm so excited. Yeah, thanks for bringing us into your podcast. <laughs> Yeah. And let, let's just yeah, talk you. about how much we fancy Claire Duval in this movie. For <laughs> and Natasha <laughs> we, the next podcast. It's just the, the Claire Duval podcast. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Bring us back we'll, to that we'll one. We'll get you in on that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to exclusively talk about her in Girl Interrupted. <laughs> All right. The plans are set. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you all so much. Thank, thank you so much. All right. Okay. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Basic Bitches Movie Club, produced by us, Basic Bitches. If you would like to know more about us, please visit basicbitchesband.com. Don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe to this podcast on your provider of choice.